Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Abhishek Jain, Senior Program Lead at the Council for Energy, Environment and Water in India. Abhishek's work at CEEW focuses on energy access in India, productive energy use and clean cooking. As you'll hear, Abhishek has done a great deal of work and research into the energy access and productive livelihood sector and shares his research and findings with us in this episode. This is part two of our two-part conversation. In the first episode, Abhishek provided us with an overview of the energy system in India, in particular focusing on electrification progress, the work that they're doing around solar-powered productive energy use technologies, and we had a discussion around solar-powered water pumps in India. In this episode, we speak about his work and research in clean cooking, the various clean cooking technologies that currently exist, the benefits from a health and social perspective, but also what are the challenges surrounding faster adoption of clean cooking technologies. Finally, we close our conversation with Abhishek's top 12 not-so-obvious takeaways about the productive energy use sector. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Abhishek Jain from CEEW, and we pick up our conversation right where we left off, speaking about clean cooking. I'd like to speak a bit about clean cooking, which I know you've done quite a lot of work about. You've recently released a paper around the clean cooking sector in India, and your research has shown that a lot of solid cooking fuels are still being used extensively within India. Can you tell us why solid cooking fuels are a problem and also what is the the need for clean cooking? And then we can dive into more detail on the work you've done. Sure. Yeah, just to first answer like why we are even looking at clean cooking and why solid fuels are an issue. So burning of solid fuels is an issue because of the pollution that it creates and the direct exposure to this indoor air pollution leads to about 500,000 premature deaths in India every year. So we lose half a million of our population just because of indoor air pollution. And the science is still evolving on the subject, but we realize that uh, shifting populations away from indoor air polluting fuels is important for us to reduce our public health burden, to reduce the comorbidity associated with the pulmonary diseases or the lung infections or the uh, long-term challenges with regards to health, which are impacting not just the well-being, but also the economic productivity of our population in the rural areas. And especially when mothers cook, children are usually around them and the young lungs are particularly susceptible to these PM2.5 emissions, which are in very high density in indoor air pollution due to these solid fuels, which can affect the overall growth of lung functions in these children and can have a long-term impact on their health and well-being. That's why it's a major issue for the country. It's a major public health issue. And that's why there has been a focus, uh, particularly from the last few years, by the government to address this issue head on. And to talk about why solid fuels are still prevalent in India, it's almost a case of saying that, okay, why a default solution is still a default solution? Because before the clean cooking came in, all of us were actually cooking using solid fuels. And that's still the reality for a lot of the population residing in developing countries including in India and other South Asian countries, as well as in various African countries. 
most of this population has never got exposed to cleaner cooking options. Uh, and that's why they continue to use solid fuels, be it dung cakes, be it firewood, be it crop residue. And also because these are easily available in their vicinity, whereas most of the clean fuels have a value chain associated with it. And they need to be provided in a regular way, either if we are talking about electricity or we are talking about any kind of gas or we are talking about some kind of improved cook stoves. All of them need regular servicing, regular support. So until and unless there are actually infrastructure providers, infrastructure provisions to provide these services, a lot of the households remain dependent on traditional biomass. Perhaps if you could tell us more about the clean cooking alternatives, what are the solutions that have emerged as a, a solution, particularly for the rural population? And what are the challenges around increasing adoption of clean cooking as well? So when we talk about the clean cooking energy solutions, particularly for, let's say, rural context in a developing country, including in India, the kind of solutions that are typically common or are advocated for are four, which is sort of an acronym which is used for them is called BLEN, where B stands for biogas, L stands for liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, E stands for electricity, and N stands for natural gas. So BLEN is essentially what most health scientists or environmental health scientists would advocate if you really want to eliminate or reduce indoor air pollution to the safe levels which are considered safe for human health. But then when you look at the realities on the ground, you realize that not many parts of the globe have access to some of these solutions. And then the second order solutions that have emerged in the space are improved cook stoves. And improved cook stoves are a fairly contentious and debatable topic where jury is quite split in terms of whether they are actually beneficial for the end consumer or not, because most of the improved cook stoves do not manage to reduce the indoor air pollution to the levels which are considered safe for human health. While they do reduce some, but they do not reduce it to the level which is useful enough for us to continue with them as a primary solution for clean cooking. And also, I mean, if you think about it, it's actually a physics and thermodynamics nightmare to solve for a problem like cooking when you're throwing any and every kind of fuel at a cook stove, be it dung cakes, be it uh, twigs, be it dried leaves, be it fuel wood, be it fodder, and so on and so forth. And you expect that this cook stove should burn all of that in a consistent way to give you consistent performance and consistent level of emissions. No one has really solved that problem so far. And that's why we struggle with the quality of improved cook stoves and the quality of combustion in these improved cook stoves. Some of the solutions which are also emerging are related to pelletized fuel so that you are standardizing the fuel which is going into the cook stoves. And especially with the forced draft cook stoves, you can still reduce the emissions to a substantial degree. But those solutions, at least in India, have not emerged in any significant way so far. And even if they emerge, I think there's a lot of dependence in terms of ensuring the quality of these cook stoves in the long run and ensuring that the pelletized fuel is available to households on a regular basis. Whereas what India has tried to do is sort of leapfrogged and expanded the penetration of liquefied petroleum gas, LPG, to again every nook and corner of the country. Between 2016 and 2019, India provided 80 million LPG connections, primarily to the economically poor. That's almost like saying providing 65,000 LPG connections every single day for three years. Now, that kind of expansion of LPG is unprecedented anywhere in the world. 
and that has significantly reshaped how keen cooking is being viewed in india now it has become a dinner table topic people are realizing that access to clean cooking fuels and the consequences of not having access to it and the air pollution associated with it are a significant health burden on us individually and collectively on the population as a whole lpg has a long history for india i mean we started consuming lpg almost 50 years ago and most of the penetration in the early decades have been primarily in the urban india it used to be quite a prized commodity even until a few years ago it remained an aspirational good for many rural households until a few years ago but over time we have expanded our lpg infrastructure in a significant way while india imports almost 80% of its crude oil and also imports almost 50% of its lpg directly but we still have gone ahead as a nation to expand lpg coverage to every nook and corner Uh, and have expanded our bottling plants capacity our uh, distribution model our uh, distribution network to reach uh, all these places so lpg is primarily distributed in india in sort of metal canisters which we call typically call them lpg cylinders here in india they weigh between uh, 5 kgs and about 14.2 kgs and usually a household get about 12 refills a year of 14.2 kg which are also subsidized for them so the recurring fuel cost actually is subsidized by the government for almost all households barring the super rich households and despite that recurring subsidy uh, a large chunk of household has not shifted towards using lpg for most of their cooking needs even though they have got a connection under this massive scheme by the government called pradhan mantri ujwala yojana pmuy but despite getting those connections they have not shifted towards lpg for most of their cooking because even at the subsidized price they end up paying a significant amount of their monthly expenditure on procuring the cooking energy and when they have something which is very readily available as a competition to this lpg which is freely available biomass no one would like to actually spend money unless they are fairly conscious about their health or are it's a educated family and so on so in many rural areas if you have easily available biomass it's very difficult to transition these households towards lpg despite the subsidy on the fuel and we've heard about the behavioral elements of the the challenge to move people to clean cooking so certainly you hear reports about how the behavioral component is a huge hurdle as well for shifting people to clean cooking sources because it is a part of culture it is a part of how they were taught to cook growing up and how their grandmothers cooked and so on is this what you see as well or is it primarily the cost factor that is challenging the adoption of clean cooking sources right So when you look at what are the biggest challenges with regards to moving people towards sustained use of electricity uh, affordability no doubt is the biggest barrier as you talk to people even though they are not using lpg for most of their cooking needs they will tell you that it is far more convenient than using traditional cook stoves which we call in india as chula they will tell you that yes the smoke is much less my eyes do not water anymore and drudgery is much less but of course i cannot afford it Having said that behavior does play a role especially in in the indian households given the patriarchy that we have inherited uh, over generations the decision making is still primarily in the hands of the male head of the household who has to actually decide whether he wants to shell money for an lpg refill or not and actually the beneficiary is primarily the primary cook which is 
women of the household so that intra household power dynamics also play a important role and understanding these gender dimensions become particularly important to understand how we can shift people towards cleaner cooking fuels so behavior i guess it is more actually to do with the male members of the household who like the taste who like that smoky flavor in their chapatis and breads whereas if you talk to the woman uh, or the primary cook they would any day be willing or keen to move towards lpg because of the convenience and the time saving that it offers but also if we sort of bring in the time dimension here when we talk about behavior it's interesting to note that 50 years ago almost entire india much like many other developing countries were entirely dependent on traditional biomass for their cooking now almost 80 to 90% of the urban indian households are dependent on lpg or pipe natural gas for their cooking almost half of the rural india is using lpg for their cooking so it has happened over time those behaviors also got overcome over time and the same would happen with the remaining households as well but the question worth asking is how can we enhance the pace of that shift how can we make sure that what took 10 years for the first 50% of the rural households should take only 5 years for the remaining 50% of the rural households great and i guess this is a natural way to then start asking about the recommendations that you came up with within your report what were the recommendations that your report and your work on the sector have suggested so let me cover like four key recommendations that emerged from the recent paper that we published in nature energy which came about about 2 months ago and the very first one is related to this flagship scheme of the government as i was mentioning which is called pradhan mantri ujwala yojana pmuy so as part of this scheme 80 million connections were provided to economically poor households primarily rural in the country and these connections were provided by and large free of cost basically waiving off most of the upfront cost to adopt an lpg connection but we realized that despite providing a free connection the use of lpg among these households remain relatively low compared to those households who have actually procured it without any upfront capital subsidy and the usual argument that one gets that okay why these households are using less lpg is that because these are poorer households they cannot afford it etc but we found that even if you control for all those socio economic differences economic differences in these households you still see much less likelihood that these households would be using lpg for their exclusive cooking compared to those who have bought the connections on their own so the finding actually then tells us that only providing this upfront support to these households is not sufficient even the existing recurring subsidy on the cylinder is not sufficient to enable a shift for these households in a limited time we probably need to nudge them specifically either in terms of through communications either in terms of providing additional recurring support for some time as well as enabling other environments around their surroundings which can help them transition and what do i mean by those other environments i'll cover in my subsequent recommendations so the very first one is that we need additional nudges and incentives for the pmui households and economically poor households in order to shift them faster towards cleaner cooking the second one that we find is that community norms play a major role in terms of determining what you would be using for your cooking fuel we realize that villages where the penetration of lpg as a primary fuel or as an exclusive fuel is high the likelihood that you would be using it as a primary fuel becomes much higher so targeting lpg promotion at the community level at the village level can actually help move many more households much faster towards cleaner cooking the third thing that we find households who own a cattle 
which means that they have easier access to dung cakes, have much less likelihood to use LPG for most of their cooking. Now, at one end, cattle is a very important commodity in India because livestock usually provides kind of an insurance to farmers, especially in the years with poor monsoon, with poor crop yields, etc. But at the same time, we are saying that having a livestock means that your transition towards clean cooking would become slower. Now, how do we solve for this conundrum? There is an economic value of having the livestock, but there is a public health burden that is coming indirectly by having the livestock. Uh, so what we are suggesting is that we need to create alternative value chains where the biomass can be used in an economically viable way in order to create an opportunity cost for this biomass, and hence it should not be then used in the household cooking. Now, either one can look at biogas as a potential solution to divert some of the cow dung and other easily available biomass in the rural areas, or one should look at micro-entrepreneurship-based village-level entrepreneurship efforts where you end up creating small biomass bricketing plants, biomass pelletizing plants, which can then provide this biomass for thermal processing in the local industry, whether it is a brick kiln, whether it is a local sweet making shop, etc., which can use this energy for their own processes and create an alternative value chain for biomass. By only promoting clean cooking fuels, we are not going to actually compete effectively with the traditional biomass. We need to find ways in which that traditional biomass can be used in meaningful ways. And finally, and this is the last one, we find that households who are actually dependent on irregular incomes, uh, households who are agricultural or households who are laborer in nature, it is much more difficult for them to transition towards clean cooking, which means that we need to look at overall rural economy paradigm how we are shaping our rural economy, how we need to shift people away from low-income occupations like subsistence farming or agricultural labor or daily wage labor so that their overall economic status can improve, their predictability of incomes can improve, and hence they can better plan for their expenditure on clean cooking. So only promoting clean cooking devoid of the overall rural economic development paradigm is not going to be the sufficient solution to enable this transition towards clean cooking. And that's really interesting to hear about because it really speaks to a whole ecosystem approach and ecosystem change that really needs to happen to shift some of the, the behaviors and the activity in the space. I think we typically think about coming up with the right technology and it will solve the problem and maybe even if you can distribute it correctly or provide the right financial incentives, it will solve the problem. But that's clearly a, a limiting factor in many cases and not quite able to get us to where we need to be. You mentioned also in your paper, fuel stacking as a concept. Can you tell us more about fuel stacking and why is this an important concept to understand with regards to clean cooking? Right. So fuel stacking basically means that you are using multiple sources of cooking energy to meet your overall cooking energy demand. I mean, you and I would use maybe a gas top along with an electricity top, maybe a microwave, maybe an electric kettle. We are using all that to meet our cooking energy needs, to meet our thermal needs with regards to water heating, with regards to food heating, etc. In the same way, a rural household would be using dung cakes, would be using fuel wood, but would also be sometimes using LPG alongside. Or if they have a small electric heater, they may end up using that as well. Uh, that's essentially what fuel stacking or cook stove stacking is. Now, why fuel stacking is particularly important when we talk about clean cooking energy access or the public health burden associated with indoor air pollution is that 
having access to cleaner cooking solutions like lpg or electricity does not necessarily ensure that you have eliminated your exposure to harmful air pollution because even if you are using lpg or electricity for some of your cooking needs let's say for making snacks for making tea or maybe one meal in the day but you're using your traditional biomass for your second meal and so on and so forth you're still exposing yourself to the harmful indoor air pollution and hence the benefits that one would realize by shifting away from uh, traditional biomass to cleaner cooking fuels doesn't really get realized because you were only able to do it partly and hence the public health burden doesn't necessarily come down that's why it is important to understand fuel stacking we certainly realize that fuel stacks will remain there but we just need to change the stack composition instead of a stack comprising traditional biomass along with a clean fuel we need to create a stack which is a mix of two or three clean fuels uh, and that's why stacking becomes particularly important great that's been fascinating to hear about your work in clean cooking perhaps now is a good time as we move towards wrapping up our conversation to cover the 12 takeaways that you wrote about in a post towards the end of last year which was a very quick but really interesting overview of the productive energy use market and so maybe what we can do is i can run through fairly quickly hopefully each of those 12 takeaways and maybe just ask you a few more questions about each of them and and understand some greater context behind each of those takeaways So your first takeaway is that the market opportunity is really big in India alone the market for productive energy technologies is over 50 billion dollars. Can you speak more about this opportunity? How did you define this opportunity? Is it for the devices themselves or is it for the the value chain? Right. So Yijan this value is essentially of the devices along with powering them so whether it is a mini grid or whether it is a small standalone solar solution or any other decentralized renewable solution which is powering this equipment so think of it like if it is a, a swing machine so it's a solar plus swing machine combination which is essentially leading aggregating to all this value if you look at a country like india we have about 120 million farmers and we only have about 30 million pump sets in the country as i told you that half of our agriculture is dependent on rains and there is no access to irrigation so even if you look at just the solar pump market in india that alone is close to 35 billion us dollars and similarly if you start looking at various other post harvest processes particularly cold storages particularly agro processing industry and so on there is a vast gap in terms of what the demand and the need is of the sector and what we are currently doing so there is a lot of opportunity uh, on that front as well apart from the farm sector when you look at the non farm sector which comprises everything which is not related to farm essentially we have about 34 million rural micro enterprises in india and about 14 to 15% of them struggle with their electricity access and they actually identify lack of reliable electricity as one of their top business challenge now in order to address some of those challenges and in order to generate a new wave of additional micro enterprises which will come in the areas which were so far not having good electricity access there is a significant potential to be unlocked there but we are not even estimating the potential which is going to come from new wave of enterprises but only for the existing enterprises and for the existing farmers we estimate a market opportunity which is beyond 50 billion us dollars 
Great. And your second takeaway is the market is hard to capture due to low customer density, high customer acquisition costs, and that potentially a, a cluster approach might be the most likely way for the market to be captured and for those technologies to succeed. Yeah. So as I said, while the market is big, at the same time, it's hard to capture. So if you are in a solar off-grid space, primarily you have been dealing with households as your end customers which means that you're dealing with solar home systems, maybe solar appliances like television, fans, etc. Which means that if you enter a village or if you enter a community, almost everyone in that village, every household in that village is a customer for you. But whereas if you are in the business of productive use, whether it is a rice mill, whether it is a oil extracting machine, whether it is a solar charkha, whether it is a solar loom, you're not going to sell more than two or three of those in one particular village. That's why you need to cast a much wider geography in order to reach the same number of customers. And that's why your operation costs can become higher and higher. And your same distribution models that you were following as a business in the consumer goods space would not hold true to do the business in the enterprise space. And that's why I say that if you are actually tapping into some of the livelihood clusters, because some of the livelihood activities actually happen in a concentrated fashion, Given that the feedstocks are sometimes available only in that area, etc. Especially, let's say, in the textile, you will have usually a weaving cluster or a spinning cluster. Or in the silk, you will have a silk reading cluster. Uh, you can tap into some of those. And there, you can still find a relatively high customer density to make sure that the, your operation models are able to recoup the cost that you're putting in, in terms of sales as well as in terms of after-sales services. Perfect. And then your third takeaway is it's a game of value, not volume. And in some cases, the market demand for specific appliances could be in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands rather than the millions. I think this speaks a bit to some of the issues we've already discussed. But in light of the fact that it is a fairly low volume market, what are the ways that some of these companies can try to get over that hurdle? Again, I think it's sort of a, a mindset change that is required, especially if you're moving from a consumer good product towards productive goods products. You are looking at much higher value products, which can be anywhere between five to 500x of your consumer good products. But at the same time, you're looking at very low volumes. So your distribution channels, your distribution partners need to be completely different. You cannot sell through typical channels like, let's say, microfinance institutions, which have been a very big channel for solar off-grid lighting in India. Because these same microfinancing institutions actually cannot necessarily extend end-user financing for these high-value products. So you need to really relook at your business model, which has to be more oriented towards high-value goods and leveraging that high-value goods to provide services to the customer. In many cases, you may not want to be in the product sale model but rather in a service sale model. Instead of selling solar cold storages, you might want to sell the service of a solar cold storage to the farmers, which would make it far more lucrative for the farmer to actually adopt your service without any upfront cost. And I think we'll, we'll get onto some of those components as well later on. 
And your fourth takeaway is energy efficiency is key. And you mentioned that energy efficiency improvements have the biggest positive impact in reducing capital cost. This one felt counterintuitive to me. So I would love to hear your explanations behind this, because I think typically we think of energy efficiency as a way to reduce ongoing operational expenditure, but not necessarily the upfront capital expenditure. Can you tell us more about how energy efficiency plays into this sector? Yeah, that's a good question, Eugene. So think of a solar home system, which is using CFLs or incandescent bulbs. And think of another home system, which is using LEDs. Now, the moment I'm shifting from CFL to LED, I'm reducing the power requirement of my system from, let's say, uh, 15 watt to 5 watt. Commensurately, I'm reducing the power consumption as well, which means both my solar panel size as well as my battery size can come down as I am improving the efficiency of the end plants. And the same logic goes for productive user plants as well. If you're looking at a machine which is right now consuming, let's say, 3 kilowatt of load, and if you're able to reduce it to 1 kilowatt through better mechanical design, better motor efficiency, and so on, and you are now trying to power that same machine instead of uh, with a 3 kilowatt panel but with a 1 kilowatt panel, you have all of a sudden brought the capital cost down for the overall equipment. That's why energy efficiency becomes a key towards economic viability for DRE, which is Decentralized Renewable Energy Powered Livelihood Solutions. Great. That certainly makes sense. So it's the cost as well of the solar generation and the battery storage that really contributes to the cost of the system. And the fifth takeaway is end-user financing and customer-oriented business model and innovations could be game-changing. So we've, I think, spoken about this already with regards to water as a service and, as you say, outlining the, the different mechanisms for changing your approach to selling things as a service rather than just selling the product. Is there anything more you want to add around this topic? How common is this approach to a service-oriented model versus um, a product-oriented model? And what do you think the barriers are to accelerating adoption of these business model approaches? Yeah. So I guess one of the biggest challenge to scale up service-based business models is to get financing for your own business. So if, let's say, you are a company who is trying to extend service of maybe uh, water pumps, pumping as a service, which means that you need to keep that asset on your books for as long as that asset is there, but also to recoup the capital investment that you have put in, which means that you need debt financing for anywhere between uh, three to five years to make sure that you are able to capitalize that asset and get returns on that asset. So ensuring long-term asset financing for the enterprise itself is the biggest challenge or the biggest bottleneck that needs to be unlocked in order to scale up service-based business models. They are still at its infancy. Financiers are not as used to them. Enterprises themselves have not tried them in any significant way, but they are the way to go. They ensure long-term utilization of the equipment. They ensure that the after-sale services are provided. They ensure that the sustainability of the asset is maintained. And they ensure that the customer remains happy without really facing that big barrier of upfront cost to adopt these solutions. So especially for high-value productive use appliances, I think that's the way in which the market is going to scale up. Great. And your next takeaway is for manufacturers, it's hard to survive on a single product. And I think this is, again, related to what we've discussed around the low volume of some of these technologies. Is there anything you want to add on the side with regards to the manufacturers and maybe how some manufacturers have already dealt with this 
Yeah. So, I mean, if you're just manufacturing one single product, unless that product has high volumes, like let's say solar swing machines, or in some cases, a multipurpose food processor, etc. It's very hard to scale your business beyond a point if you're just working in one single product. A good approach here is to usually develop a suite of products in the same value chain in which you are already present. For example, if you're in the agri-processing value chain, let's say more specifically, if you're in the rice processing value chain, think of different products that your end user need uh, across the processing cycle or for creating different things out of the same raw material. You can make puffed rice out of your rice. You can make rice flour out of your rice. You can polish your rice and directly sell it. So there are different kinds of value addition that is possible. Uh, and if you are going to work in the related value chain, it is easy to tap into the rest of the ecosystem. You don't need to create dealerships for different products because you are trying to play in the similar value chain. So I think that is one way in which some of the companies in India are trying to also grow. This is true for even conventional entrepreneurs or equipment manufacturers who are not even looking at decentralized renewable energy or solar productive use, but even the regular grid-powered solutions. Because there again, the markets are not as large and you need to make sure that you have a diverse set of equipment portfolio or solutions portfolio to tap into that market and scale your businesses. And I think the second two are, are pretty related. So on the deployment side, you said that the deployers for a single product portfolio is unviable, again, due to the volumes. And if you are going to go down the single product route, vertical integration is the way to go to make the businesses more viable. Is there anything, I guess, different about vertical integration? Are, are there any additional benefits maybe around vertical integration with regards to some of these technologies versus, say, you know, solar home system providers? Because I think one of the challenges certainly within the solar home system sector is that historically it's been an incredibly vertically integrated industry. But I think that has presented a lot of players with more challenges in many ways and more problems to solve than just increasing the, the profit margins. Yeah. And actually, that's the big difference between the consumer oriented goods model vis-a-vis -vis the enterprise oriented one. Actually, the way I look at the vertical integration in the enterprise space is more in the product value chain. For example, if you are, let's say, a manufacturer of a silk reeling machine, which is essentially reeling silk using solar energy, instead of just providing those silk reeling machines, you are actually now working with the end users towards the downstream of the value chain to take that silk yarn and get it converted into, let's say, silk fabric. And then you are linking that silk fabric to the market. So you are actually now playing a role beyond just an equipment manufacturer but also in the end product value chain, because that is the only way in which you can scale up the deployment of your own solution. Uh, so you're no more necessarily just equipment manufacturer, but you're actually playing a much bigger role in the end product value chain. And we are seeing companies who are right now in this transition. They started as an equipment manufacturer, but now are more into the integrated market of the end product because they realize that by only looking at the equipment, they cannot scale beyond a point. Perfect. Another key takeaway is that market signals are weak um, and only the people who persevere and people who are well networked can succeed within this industry. This seems to be, I think, an area that you could have potentially rapid improvement in some ways. Can you outline maybe more of the problems and how do you think about this and what are the ways to overcome this? Yeah. So essentially, I mean, rural livelihood is a very interesting beast, so to say, like while rural livelihoods have been there forever, yet very few people understand them well 
and each of the livelihood ecosystem has its unique stakeholders and tapping into them means that you need to really understand the overall ecosystem of that livelihood like who are the key decision makers at different levels if you're working at a state level who are the key entities you need to actually keep in touch with uh, if you're working at a district who are the key players you need to keep in touch with and while there are a lot of these informal connections which are already established you only get to know about them once you are deeply embedded into the system so as a new player it's really sometimes can be mind boggling that okay how do i really penetrate into this ecosystem and that really needs a lot of perseverance to stick around to story build those connections to get to understand who's playing what role who is calling what shots so that you can then actually penetrate into that ecosystem and can make some sales for yourself that's what i mean by having a good network is important for in the space and then your second to last takeaway is distribution channels exist but they're not apparent i think this one is pretty interesting and i think you've mentioned how the value chain may be structured but can you speak a bit about the existing distribution channels how are they set up and how can entrepreneurs tap into these existing distribution channels right so i mean i guess the easiest way to think about distribution channels is to think about your end customer and think about all the touch points that this end customer is going to usually go to if let's say you are developing solutions for the farming community maybe some kind of agro processing machine and so on and you want to tap into that community you'll typically try and see where does a farmer usually go from whom do they usually get their information from whom they do they usually get their credit and can you tap into any one of those and see if they can become your distribution channel now in this case maybe for information dissemination you may want to partner with some of the extension services that are being provided to the farmers for actual product demonstration or actual product sales you may want to partner with agri input dealers who are dealing with let's say small scale agri equipments but also with seeds fertilizers etc in case you are looking for end consumer financing for this product you need to actually tap into the small regional rural banks or the other financing channels that the farmer is tapping into so i think that's the way to think about this instead of creating your own distribution channels especially in a space where the customer density is going to be low it's better to ride on the existing distribution channels which are being created or have been created for various other products and services that the end customer is interested in and how can you ride on top of those distribution channels is going to be uh, a very important aspect of ensuring viability of your operations and your final takeaway is that we should keep in mind the big picture a new rural economy i'd love to discuss more about this because i think it's a, a really interesting aspiration because for many rural areas the implicit goal is to move to an urban area where you can get a job and increase your income but I think a lot of the developments that we've been discussing can really change that tide and really focus on the rural economy instead. So in fact it's uh, funny and interesting that I wrote this almost now 8 to 9 months back but the relevance of this has become even more so in the times when we are today especially because of the pandemic induced lockdown which resulted in significant reverse migration in India a lot of the urban migrant workers have gone back to their villages some estimates suggest almost 30 million urban migrants have gone back and given the kind of distress that they faced there are also insights emerging from the on ground surveys that a proportion of these migrants would probably never like to come back to what they were doing before they went due to the lockdown 
And now if you think about them, there are 30 million migrants who have gone back to the villages. Even if 25% of them chooses to stay back, we are looking at a substantial large proportion of working population, which now needs additional livelihoods in rural areas. But even in the absence of this so-called migration crisis, there is a need to look at how our rural economies are developing. Rural economy in India is primarily an agrarian economy, but the agricultural incomes are coming down year by year. It's the non-agricultural incomes which are becoming the mainstay of the rural economy. However, the quality of that non-agricultural income is really low. What do I mean by that? Most of that non-agricultural income is coming from low-wage jobs, unskilled labor, uh, and so on. The high-quality jobs or the value addition activities are not happening as much. And while there are many reasons why those value addition activities are not happening in rural areas, one of the binding constraints up until now was lack of reliable electricity. Without reliable electricity, a lot of the value addition that you need to do through mechanization, through processing, just is not feasible. And hence, all the other supporting ecosystem has not developed as much in the rural areas. But on the back of decentralized energy, on the back of off-grid solar, there is a whole lot of economic potential that can be unleashed. And it can remove that binding constraint from the equation and can help improve value addition in the rural areas, bring back the migrated youth back to the rural areas so that they can earn far better while living at homes rather than living away from homes. And when, and we can overall look at a very different rural economy emerging in India and potentially in other parts of the developing world as well. That, that's really fascinating to think about. And the impact of coronavirus and COVID-19 has really highlighted that reverse rural migration. Can you tell us more about what the impact of coronavirus and COVID-19 has been for the work that you've seen and the companies that you've been working with? So I guess, I mean, certainly it came as a surprise. I mean, despite the global news, India, I guess, was not really prepared when the pandemic finally hit us. And the sudden lockdown in the country meant there was quite a challenge with regards to how migrants were dealing with their day-to-day -day situation and meeting their day-to-day -day food demands. The sudden lockdown meant that their access to food got limited. And in the absence of having enough savings, they had to choose to go back to their native villages. And in the process now, even after the lockdown, as the country is starting to slowly open up, labor shortages are becoming a challenge for some of the enterprises working in this space. Apart from labor, their cash flows are becoming a challenge because their payables, whether it is from the government or other private sector, are not getting cleared because everyone is trying to hold off to the limited cash that they have, which means that their payables as well as receivables, both are getting blocked. And everyone in the value chain is sort of getting hampered because of it. Thirdly, because there was a supply chain disruption, a lot of the enterprises who are dependent on electronics, particularly coming from China, be it controllers, be it uh, DC motors and so on, have faced significant challenges with regards to their original equipments or the components, which they could not come in time. And hence their manufacturing have stalled. Finally, while all these challenges are there, uh, a lot of innovation and ingenuity is also at display. In fact, a couple of enterprises whom we are trying to support as part of the Powering Livelihood program have quickly pivoted their work or innovation, so to say. And two of the enterprises who are particularly in the textile value chain have started manufacturing 
cotton masks in a big way. One of them has already manufactured close to 400,000 cotton masks, which were, I mean, where the fabric is actually weaved on solar looms and the yarn was spun on solar charkhas and the masks were uh, actually manufactured on solar powered sewing machines. So there are also these positive stories which are emerging as we are fighting through the crisis. That's great. I think that's a great illustration of how you can bring together um, a lot of what we've already spoken about. I was curious to hear about the fact that you mentioned that some of the reverse migration, the people who have gone back to the rural locations might not actually go back to the urban areas once the pandemic has subsided. What is the reason behind this and why would that happen? I guess part of the reason is the kind of mental trauma that some of the population unfortunately had to go through because we didn't prepare ourselves well while deciding to lock down ourselves, which meant that access to food, access to basic services got curtailed for a part of this population. And some of them actually ended up taking fairly extreme steps of walking down hundreds of miles to reach back their homes because no public transport was actually on as part of the lockdown, which meant that in scorching heat of May, people were walking down hundreds of miles across the plains of India to reach their homes. Now, that's a lot of mental trauma, which not everyone would be able to come out from anytime soon. And hence, I guess there is this underlying perspective among the migrants that at least a part of them would not like to come back uh, and would rather uh, look for uh, opportunities in their village or at least in the vicinity of their village, rather than coming all the way across the country and so on. That's a really stark note to end on, and obviously a very sad situation at the moment. But thank you very much for your time, Abhishek. It's been fantastic to have you on Distributing Solar. You've been incredibly generous with your time and your insights and knowledge. So thank you for joining us on our podcast. Yeah, so thank you, Eugen. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Perfect. Thank you so much. That was our conversation with Abhishek Jain from CEEW. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources and contact details available. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. It helps others find our podcast. Thanks for listening and join us next time when we speak with Tobias Engelmeyer from TFE Energy as we talk about data analytics and digitization in the off-grid energy sector.